Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 16. After Hours with Metropolitan Callistos Ware. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and therefore is an after-hours episode where I'm interviewing a guest. So far in this podcast, we've had a handful of clergy, a Calvary Chapel pastor, some Anglican vicars, and most recently, a Byzantine priest and nun. And today, we welcome a Metropolitan, Metropolitan Callistos Ware. So, a little bit about him. Timothy Ware was born in Bath, England. He was educated at Westminster School, to which he won a scholarship, and Magdalen College, Oxford, where he took a double first in classics, as well as reading theology. Having been raised Anglican, at the age of 24, he embraced the Orthodox Christian faith, travelling subsequently throughout Greece, spending a great deal of time at the Monastery of St. John the Theologian at Patmos. He also frequented other major centres of Orthodoxy, such as Jerusalem and Mount Athos. In 1966, he was ordained to the priesthood and was tonsured as a monk, receiving the name Callistos. In the same year, he became a lecturer at Oxford, teaching Eastern Orthodox studies, a position which he held for 35 years until his retirement. In 1982, he was consecrated to the Episcopacy as a titular bishop with the title Bishop of Dioclea. Despite his elevation, Callistos remained in Oxford and carried on his duties both as the parish priest of the Oxford Greek Orthodox community and as a lecturer at the university. On March 30th, 2007, the Holy Synod of the Ecumenical Patriarch elevated the Diocese of Dioclea to Metropolis and Bishop Callistos to titular Metropolitan of Dioclea. Your Eminence, welcome to Pints with Jack. Pleased to be talking with you. As listeners will know, I go to a Byzantine Catholic parish. And so the vast majority of our formation material comes from Eastern Orthodox sources. So I first came across your name when I picked up a copy of, it was actually the 1993 edition of your book, The Orthodox Church. So I knew you as an Orthodox writer, but it was as I was reading through C.S. Lewis in the Church, a collection of essays in honour of Lewis's secretary, Walter Hooper, that I discovered that you were also an admirer of Lewis. In that book, you have an essay entitled C.S. Lewis, An Anonymous Orthodox, where you look at aspects of Lewis's writings with which an Orthodox audience would be particularly sympathetic. And I love the essay, and so I wanted to get you onto the show so we could talk about it. But before we get to that, we have some housekeeping. Here on Pints with Jack, we always have a quote of the week, a drink of the week, and a toast. And the quote of the week comes from Mere Christianity, and I chose it because I'm sure at some point today we're going to talk about theosis. Here's what Lewis writes. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, 
though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Next up, we have the drink of the week. Often it's an alcoholic beverage of some sort, but because it's rather early in the morning here in California, I have opted for a hot cup of Bird Rock coffee. And with each episode, we toast one of our Gold Level supporters on Patreon. And today we are toasting Jeff Booth. If you'll please raise your glass. Jeff, thank you for your generous spirit. May you be blessed in return and always be filled with the divine life. Cheers. So to kick things off, we have a wide variety of denominations represented among our listeners, and many of them may have never even heard of a metropolitan before. So I suppose the best first question would be, what exactly is a metropolitan? The word metropolis means a mother city, a main uh, center. And so a metropolitan, strictly speaking, is the bishop of a chief city. But in my case, I am purely a titular metropolitan. Um, I was first of all bishop of Dioclea, and then I was made metropolitan of Dioclea, but Dioclea is a place somewhere in Turkey where I have never been. And so my real position has been that I've served in the Greek parish here in Oxford, and for 35 years I taught full-time in the university. Uh, so I am not an active bishop, but merely a theoretical one. <laughs> so metropolitan technically means the bishop of a major city, though in modern Greek use, it's applied much more widely. Well, now we've got that cleared up. As I mentioned in the introduction, you were raised in the Anglican Communion, but you converted to Orthodoxy in your 20s. At what point in that process did you encounter the writings of C.S. Lewis? I must have begun to read C.S. Lewis in detail in 1952 when I went up to Oxford. I became a student in the autumn of 1952 at Magdalen College where C.S. Lewis was at that time one of the fellows. He was the tutor in English literature. Now, I never actually talked with him personally, so I'm something of a fraud in appearing on your program. <laughs> I used to see him each day in Magdalen because he liked to go out for a walk before he went to the morning service in the chapel. The morning service was at 8, and he, between about 7.30 and 8, would be walking around the grounds of Magdalen. And I sometimes walked around the grounds at the same time. And we used to greet each other, but I was far too shy to engage him in conversation. In those days, the senior members of the university were more remote from the undergraduates than would be the case now. And I'm sure if I had stopped him and talked to him, he would have been 
gracious and friendly, but he was not the sort of person to take the initiative. Mm-hmm. So my personal contacts with him were lim- limited to simply saying good morning. But when I first came up to Oxford, autumn of 1952, I became very interested in his fantasy literature. That was where I started. The space trilogy that he wrote, Out of the Silent Planet, with its two successive volumes. And those I read with great excitement. I had already, before I came to Oxford, come to know the novels of Charles Williams. Of course, Lewis and Williams were both members of the group known as the Inklings. Charles Williams' novels are not exactly fantasy, because they're about people in this world. They are, we might say, supernatural thrillers. Mm. And because of my interest in Williams first, I therefore became interested in Lewis. And the third member of the Inklings in whom I became interested a little later was J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, His trilogy of the Ring, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, the trilogy, began to appear in uh, 1954. And I remember buying it almost as soon as it came out, each volume, and reading it with great excitement. So I came to know Lewis, first of all, as a member of this group, the Inklings, and through his imaginative writing. Later on, I read what is, in fact, I think his best book, Till We Have Faces. It is perhaps the least well-known of Lewis's books. It was, I believe, his own favorite. And so that could be added to the fantasy literature. And of course, I bought the Narnia books and used to give them to my younger sisters as they came out during the 1950s. So this was my way in to Lewis through his fantasy writing. Do you still have all of those first editions? I imagine they'd be worth quite a bit these days. Well, in some cases, yes. In other cases, people have taken them away and not given them back. (laughs) So I've only got some volumes in the first editions. Lewis was well known at that date in the early 50s. He'd become famous because of his broadcasts during the Second World War, which appeared as mere Christianity. But I had no idea that he would become as celebrated as has happened. And I would not have guessed that 50 years later, he, he, he would be so widely studied and acclaimed. So I don't suppose I attached particular importance to these first editions. <laughs> I should have locked them up in a cupboard. <laughs> well, I think you and Lewis were of one mind on that front. Uh, I heard an interview with Walter Hooper, his secretary, 
And he said that it was the only argument that he ever won with C.S. Lewis because Lewis didn't think that people would be reading him long after his death. And Walter was convinced that they would be and also played a large part in making sure that actually happened by keeping his works in print. And that actually provides a rather nice transition to talk about your essay, because it appeared in a book, C.S. Lewis and the Church, which was a collection of essays in honour of Walter Hooper. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write your essay and have it included in that book? The book was edited by Father Walter Hooper, who, in fact, only got to know Lewis a few months before he died, but who has dedicated his life to making Lewis's work more widely known. Um, and it was doubtless at Hooper's invitation, if I remember rightly, that I contributed this article. I called it, yes, C.S. Lewis as an anonymous orthodox. And I took the phrase anonymous orthodox from an article about C.S. Lewis by Andrew Walker. In fact, Andrew Walker attributes this designation, anonymous orthodox, to an orthodox bishop unnamed with whom he talked. And I took this up in my article, and I argued that while Lewis had very few personal contacts with the Orthodox Church, yet in his theology, he was very close to Orthodoxy. You said that he didn't have much contact with the Eastern Orthodox Church. What contact did he have that we know about, for certain? Lewis's contacts with the Orthodox Church, um, first of all, in his letters to Malcolm, he mentions attending an Orthodox liturgy. This was probably in the little Russian Orthodox chapel, which existed at that time in a room in the house uh, in Marston Street. And what struck him about the Orthodox service was above all the element of freedom that different people in the congregation did different things. Some stood, some knelt. And he mentions how there was a child that was crawling around on the floor. <laughs> and he said, nobody worried about that. Nobody was looking at their neighbor. There wasn't any anxiety that everybody must do the same thing at the same time. And this he liked as compared with Anglican worship which is much more regimented. I might add that if Lewis had gone to an Orthodox church in the States today, he would have found that the service was probably much more orderly because people would have been in pews and most of them would have arrived at the beginning of the service and they wouldn't have moved around. But this was his experience. He doesn't say what date he went to the service of the Orthodox, but he had contacts with the 
lecturer in Eastern Orthodox culture at that time, Nicholas Zernov. Uh, Nicholas and his wife Militza were certainly friends of Lewis. I was Nicholas's lodger and I remember how Lewis came to tea sometimes with them. Uh, not that I was invited, but um, certainly it would be, I think, through the Zernovs that he came, came to visit the Orthodox chapel in Oxford. Then after his marriage, he went on honeymoon to Greece. And he records how he was impressed by the way the Greek clergy were close to the people. They would sit having coffee with their parishioners in the village square. He liked the feeling of informality and friendliness that he saw in the Greek clergy at that time. He thought that this was something that Western Christians could easily borrow. But his links with orthodoxy were almost certainly limited. Although you do mention in your essay that when he died, Lewis was buried with a Russian cross of white flowers. How did that come about? There were not supposed to be any flowers at his funeral except the official ones, but Militsa Zernov disregarded this prohibition and brought the cross with flowers and this was laid on his coffin and that was how he was buried. Beautiful. Now one thing that surprised me greatly when I first started to learn more about Lewis was that he only had limited contact with the early church fathers the Christian writers of the early centuries of the church. I just simply assumed that because Lewis had such fluency in Greek and Latin, that he would have just devoured these authors in their original languages. But from what I've read from other writers, it seems that that wasn't the case. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this. How much familiarity do you think Lewis actually had with the writings of the early church fathers? Certainly, C.S. Lewis was not a patristic writer. In his book, The Allegory of Love, there are many references to the writer who goes under the name of Dionysius the Areopagite, who, was not, who is mentioned in the Book of Acts as a disciple of St. Paul, but he was in fact a writer of the early fifth century. But his interest in Dionysius is simply because Dionysius was read by his authors whom he was studying in the Allegory of Love. So it's not directly with the fathers that his interest arises, but he is concerned with the influence of the fathers and Dionysius or Dennis in particular um, on his medieval and post-medieval writers. So Lewis had no hostility towards the fathers, but that was not his field. 
This rather confirms what Joseph Pierce said when he was on the show, and I asked him a very similar sort of question. He said that, in his opinion, when Lewis read the early church fathers, he was reading them primarily as great literature, the city of God, the confessions, rather than, say, specifically for their theology. This, I think, is basically true because his references to Dionysius in the Allegory of Love are not because he has an independent interest in the theology of the Areopagite, but he is interested in the way the authors whom he was studying in the Allegory of Love made use of Dionysius and were influenced by him. Mm -hmm. So yes, Lewis studied as an undergraduate classics. He did the course Mods and Greats, and then he read English literature. But he was not, let us say, a professional theologian. He was deeply interested in religious issues. He had a keen and very alert mind, but he did not see himself primarily as a theologian. Mm. Though we should give the word theologian a broad application. One of the Desert Fathers, Evagrius of Pontus, says the theologian is one who prays. And if you pray in spirit and in truth, you are a theologian. <laughs> now, Lewis was certainly that kind of theologian, but he was not a theologian in a strictly academic sense. However, he was very widely read, and I don't know how many of the fathers he had studied, but we shouldn't underestimate his literary curiosity. In your essay, you highlight several areas in Lewis's writings which appeal to Orthodox readers. The first of these is apophatic theology. And this phrase isn't particularly well known, so would you mind explaining to us what apophatic theology is and where we find it in Lewis's corpus? There are two basic approaches. The first is affirmative theology, which is known as cataphatic, which makes positive statements about God. And then there is negative theology, which is also known as apophatic theology, which applies negations to God. So you say, for example, that God is good, but then you say, yet not as we understand goodness. God is a person, but not as we understand personhood. <clears throat> not that he is impersonal, but he is infinitely above and beyond what we know of the person. Uh, so, yes, um, there are those two approaches. I wouldn't see them as alternatives. I think a theologian must work with both the affirmative or cataphatic and the negative or apophatic. But the Orthodox Church has put particular emphasis on the apophatic approach that God is mystery, 
far above and beyond what we can understand. By mystery, I do not mean simply a puzzle, an unsolved enigma. I mean a religious truth that is revealed to our understanding, but yet not totally revealed because it reaches into the unfathomable depths of God. So yes, um, Lewis, I don't think he uses the phrase apophatic theology, but he certainly is concerned to stress that God is mystery, that God reveals himself, but never totally, and that we never fully understand him. In the last of the Narnia books, they go higher and higher. And Lewis would have said, I think, that there is no end to the journey, that God is infinite and without limits. And so we never reach the point when we feel we have got to know all there is to be known about God. There will always be further things to discover. God will always have to all eternity surprises. Now, I think that approach to God is seen from time to time in Lewis's writing. He does not make it a specific theme, subject of a separate essay, but he certainly allows for this. The next area you discuss relates to the Incarnation and the Trinity. And I, I was a little bit surprised about that when I first started reading it, because all Christian denominations place importance on the Incarnation and the Trinity. They're essentially Christian doctrines. Why do you focus on these in particular in relation to the Orthodox Church? And in what way does Lewis emphasize these doctrines? You are right to say that all Christians, at least all Christians who belong to the mainstream tradition, ha have faith in God as Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all Christians, at any rate, in the mainstream tradition, believe that Jesus Christ is fully and truly God, fully and truly human two complete natures in one single person. These are things that Christians share together. But I think the Orthodox Church places a greater emphasis upon them than is done by most Western churches. There's a tendency in the West to see the doctrine of the Trinity as high theology, very difficult to understand, one in three and three in one, a kind of theological riddle. But in orthodoxy, the doctrine of the Trinity is seen as a living source of how we understand the church, how we understand our own personhood. So it is not a question of the orthodox stressing something that is absent from the West, but it could be said that the Orthodox treat it with 
a greater vividness and centrality than many Western writers. And here I see a strong link between Lewis and the Orthodox, that Lewis's writing is strongly Trinitarian, strongly Christological. He's very firm in his attachments to these basic Christian doctrines. I was quite surprised by this when I came to read his apologetic writings, which I only read much later than uh, my acquaintance with his Narnia books and his Space Trilogy. But I was impressed by mere Christianity and by uh, the problem of pain and miracles by the fact that he wrote in an original way, because there's a difficulty that you might seem to be saying things that everybody knew, and at the same time, firmly committed to the great tradition, as we might call it, of the Christian faith. So that, that would be a first thing that I see linking Lewis with the Orthodox. There are things that are stressed very much in orthodoxy and in the West about which Lewis does not speak so much. Let me mention two. There is the question of the Eucharist and what you believe concerning Holy Communion. And there is the belief of Christians in the communion of saints do you pray for the departed? Do you ask the saints for their intercessions? What is your attitude towards the Blessed Virgin Mary? Now, these are things that Lewis does not say a great deal about. We should not therefore conclude that he considered them unimportant but in his apologetic writings, the problem of pain, uh, mere Christianity and, and miracles, his concern is not to make contrasts between the different branches of Christianity, but quite deliberately, he wishes to emphasize the things which Christians share in common. And because there has been great debates between East and West, between Catholics and Protestants about the Eucharist and about the position of the saints and the mother of God, he therefore does not speak of these things as much as we might expect. For example, in the Orthodox Church, one of the most creative strands of theology in the last 50 years since Lewis's death has been what we might call Eucharistic ecclesiology. The idea that the Eucharist is central to our understanding of the church, that the church makes the Eucharist and the Eucharist makes the church. This is what you find in writers like the Russian Nicholas Athanasiev and the Greek John Zizoulas.
Now, I don't find that approach in Lewis. I don't think he contradicts this or denies it, but this was not his own approach. So there are some elements which would lead me to label him an orthodox, but I recognize that there are also differences, things of which the orthodox attach great importance, but which do not come out so clearly in his writings. But one does not expect one person to say everything about everything. <laughs> now, one thing that Lewis wrote about a lot, although he didn't use the term, is theosis. Regular listeners to our podcast will have heard myself and Matt mention theosis quite often. But would you mind explaining to our listeners what theosis is and where we find this idea present in Jack's writings? Well, let us, first of all, say what we mean by the word theosis. Literally translated, it would be deification or divinization. Applied to the understanding of salvation, theosis means that the Christian life is not just a philosophical system that we entertain with our reasoning brain. And it's not just a code of moral rules that we try to follow. But Christianity is something deeper, let us say more organic, that to be a Christian, to be in Christ, is to be transformed totally in our nature. Salvation means not a philosophical theory, not a moral code, though those are aspects of our understanding of salvation, but salvation means a total transformation, a far-reaching transfiguration of our whole human nature, that we are taken up into God, that the divine life penetrates our nature at every point. We retain, each of us, our human individuality, our personal uniqueness, but at the same time, we are in Christ. We are taken up through Christ into the life of the Holy Trinity. As one of the Wesleys said in a hymn, you whom he ordained to be transcripts of the Trinity. So we are transcripts of the Trinity. We are to reproduce the Trinitarian life of God in our own lives. So this is what theosis implies, a deep-reaching uplifting of our whole human nature into God. We are deified, not in the sense that we cease to be created human beings, but in the sense that the eternal uncreated energies of God penetrate our being, transform us, and 
in being deified, we become truly human in a way that we would not otherwise be. Now, I think Lewis shared this approach to salvation, that it is not a juridical exchange, not a theoretical acceptance of certain truths, not just moral effort, but that the Christian life is something that transforms us and makes us different and yet the same. I think if we wanted to learn more about Lewis's understanding of this, we could look at the lectures he gave during the war called The Abolition of Man. We could look at the last of his fantasy writings, Till We Have Faces, which in many ways is the book of Lewis's that I love the most, though it's the one that has least popularity, I think, in the wider world, though Lewis himself also, I believe, preferred it. And we could look also at his autobiographical writing, Surprised by Joy. And these would show us how he understood salvation as theosis. And this I would see as something that brings him very close to the Greek fathers, though he does not speak of the parallels, very close to the contemporary Orthodox Church. You mentioned earlier, Till We Have Faces. That was actually the book that we did last season. And we went through that book simply because so many people had reached out to us and asked us to go through that book. Because for them, it was very often the one book of Lewis's that they really couldn't get their heads around. And while it's not my favorite book of Lewis's, I'll say that by the end of last season, it became my second favorite. What is your favorite? Ah, that would be The Great Divorce. Oh, yes. Well, I would also put that very high in my <laughs> estimate of Lewis. It's brief, but there is so much to be found in it. But Till We Have Faces is an enigmatic work, profound, and it will not reveal its full meaning just on one reading. Mm. You have to go deeper into it. And there are many elements in it which are paradoxical and unexpected. Reread it, persevere, and they will discover many things. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Matt had actually finished Till We Have Faces when we began that season, but I stayed in the dark. I read the chapters along with each episode, so I got to read the book very slowly which is the way that I always tell people that they need to read Lewis generally and Till We Have Faces in particular. Our other co-host, Andrew Lazo, he's actually in the middle of working on a book helping to unpack all of the riches that can be found in Till We Have Faces. More recently, I've been meeting more people who say that they really love Till We Have Faces, but I still don't think I've ever met anyone who loves it quite as much as Andrew. <laughs> Your Eminence, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about your essay. For those who have never read anything by you before, where might be a good place to begin? 
Well, uh, there are two books of mine which uh, have been widely popular. The first is my Penguin book, The Orthodox Church, and the second is The Orthodox Way. Now, The Orthodox Church was commissioned by Penguin Books as an introduction to orthodoxy, and therefore I was concerned to present a reasonable picture of the history, the contemporary situation, and the faith and worship of Orthodox Christians. It amazes me that a book that was published in 1963, now after nearly 70 years, is still in print and still read by people. However, there we are. If I had been writing it now, I might have said many things differently. The second book, The Orthodox Way, is more personal, and that is an attempt to take some of the main themes of Orthodox faith and to show in particular the link between doctrine and spirituality, between theology and prayer. So there I have sought to express more of my own inner convictions. I have spent a lot of my energies on the work of translating and editing with others. I've done with Mother Berry of the convent in France at Bussy en Haute, three volumes of liturgical translations. And then I've been involved with Gerald Palmer and Philip Sherard with the translation of the English Philokalia in five volumes. And volume five is already now to go to the printers. So I hope that it will very soon be out um, at some point next year. And so I spent a lot of my energies on translation work, but I'm also trying to collect some of my articles. Just at the moment, I'm collecting articles that I've written about the human person. So wait a little, and with luck, they will appear. Wonderful stuff. Uh, please feel free to reach out when that's going to be published, and I'll make sure our listeners know. As we wrap up today's episode, would you mind closing us in prayer? Yes, indeed. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed talking with you. And now just to end with a prayer. Oh, Father, my hope. Son, my refuge. Holy Spirit, my protection. Holy Trinity, glory to thee. Thank you very much, Father. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up. And further in, yes. Cheers. <laughs>